All right, we're going to be in two places tonight, uh, just briefly. 2 Kings 23, and then run off to Jeremiah chapter 3. Second Kings twenty three and then Jeremiah chapter three. You're welcome. Let's, uh, let's open in prayer. This is probably everybody. Anybody else know anybody coming that I'm leaving out somebody? That's probably it. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done. Uh, thank you for demonstrating the fullness of your love through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look back into the Old Covenant, we will be quickly reminded of our desperate need of a Savior, of someone to um, not just save us, but to go as a representative before you, someone to walk in righteousness, someone to fulfill the law of God on our behalf, someone to accomplish what we were designed to accomplish, somebody to fulfill our purpose in all of its fullness, and for you to look upon us as those who have been joined to him, as those who have been reconciled to you through him, as those who have received a righteousness that is not our own and yet is counted unto us. Father, the gospel is a very wonderful thing. And I pray as we look in Jeremiah tonight and we're reminded of the depth of the depravity of man that we would rejoice in our Savior and the depth of His righteousness. So Lord, please, through the power of Your Spirit, uh, form my words, uh, help them to be faithful and empower them to pierce all of our hearts and uh, help us to worship You more because of it. Help us to serve you more because of it. Um, help us to glory in you in every aspect of life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So notice with me in Jeremiah 3, and I'll mark the sections for you. There's no way we're going to get through this section. Yes, I was about to, you're about to ask me something. If you'll notice verse 6 in Jeremiah 3, It says, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king. So this sermon does not end, or this message from the Lord does not end if you'll, until you get over to Jeremiah chapter 7. If you'll notice verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying. And so all this is one section. Uh, and so we looked at this on a Wednesday night the last time we were together, how Jeremiah... Much of Jeremiah is just sermons that have been collected and put together. And it's difficult to keep up with timelines because he didn't necessarily keep them in order of when they took place. Um, maybe I'll figure out the order, but I haven't yet. Still a lot of work to do and a long way to go. But nonetheless, this is one message that Jeremiah preached to Judah that we need to look at. Verse 6, though, is the most interesting to me. It, it sets the groundwork for everything that he's about to say that we do need to consider. It says, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought after she has done all these things, she will return to me, but she did not return, and her treacherous 
sister Judah saw it. So he's about to pronounce judgment on Judah for her actions. But where's the contrast in what I just read that should make us pause and think for just a minute? Anybody remember? What was going on in the days of Josiah? Revival. So that's why, keep your finger there, that's why I had you go to 2 Kings to kind of remind you a little bit of the revival that was taking place. Uh, and there's a lot you could read, but let's just read 23 and start in verse 25. And you'll notice that it says there, before him, in reference to Josiah. In fact, if you'll notice the, the subtitle over verse 4, the reforms under Josiah. So there's a great deal there to read. He literally demolished everything and anything that did not glorify God in the city. Okay? So when you get to verse 25, it says, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Nobody liked this guy. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen in the temple of which I said, my name shall dwell there forever. So in other words, Josiah led the greatest reformation in the Old Testament. And yet when we go back to Jeremiah chapter 3, the whole thing is about the sins of Judah. So what do we learn about reformation? What do we learn about repentance just from our very start? Where does repentance have to come from? From the heart. And that was the problem. Even though Josiah did everything imaginable that he could have done, he still could not change the heart of the people. We'll find that they would praise God with their lips, so to speak, like Isaiah would say, but their hearts were far from him. They, if you will, returned to church but they did not stop their adulterous practices in the worship of other gods. Okay? So they returned to the old religion, so to speak, but they didn't stop the new religion of the worship of idols. And so all of Josiah's reforms were for naught. Now, we need to bring this, I think, and give it some more thought in the context of political reformations. Because literally, if there were a candidate that could be uh, voted on and, and, and win and, and go into office and literally change our country, make everything that does not glorify God illegal and punishable, every wicked thing on television, take it off, every sexually immoral thing, do away with, Make all the courts just and right, making proper decisions. If you commit wickedness or any sort of crime, you're justly punished. He could reform the entire system. But he still cannot change one heart of the American people. It worked socially. It worked, yeah. We tore down all the uh, um, those racist statues and we're no longer racist, right? Right. See... <laughs> And see, let me pick on Martin Luther again. His dream. Give him the dream, but it doesn't change anything. You can give it every letter of the dream that he desired, but it doesn't change who we are at our heart. It doesn't do one thing. So we have to keep that in perspective, especially, I mean, when you get involved politically. I mean, yeah, if all those things happened, it would be more comfortable for us. We would feel safe and secure. 
everything would be right in its proper order. We would enjoy it. You could let your kids play out in the streets again, no big deal. Go to the mall without fear. Don't have to walk around explaining to your kids why two women are walking around holding hands. None, all that's gone. But you haven't done anything because you haven't changed people from the heart. And so it's interesting to me that Jeremiah is preaching repentance during the greatest reformation slash revival in the Old Testament. And God literally says judgment is coming. In fact, you're too far gone. I'm about to send the enemy from the north and drag you off into captivity. And I'm sure the people were scratching their heads going, but Joseph, what about Josiah? What about all these things he has done? Because they were too blind to recognize the own, their own sin in their life. They were too blind to recognize the sin in their own heart. And we've got to be able to do this as, as professing believers. And we talk about this a lot. Your sin ought to break your heart. And you need to know what it is. And it needs to cause you to weep. You need to beg God for forgiveness. And you need to wrestle with those things. It's, it's a frightening thing to have a conversation with an individual who professes faith in Christ about those sort of things and they look at you with a blank stare. Because that's exactly what you find going on in the days of Jeremiah. They're, lo they're looking at God like, what are you talking about? What are we doing wrong? And God's like everything. Because everything from your heart is just wrong. It doesn't glorify me. So that's what the prophet was, was driving at. He brings things against, against them, not just their idolatry. He brings up things of, of what some would refer to as social justice in our day. He, justice for the poor. He'll talk about justice for the poor. They, they didn't care anymore about those sort of things. So there's a number of sins that he'll touch on. I don't know that we'll get through all of them. Um, maybe we'll come back to it. I don't know. I don't really know how to handle Jeremiah because I know I can't simply go verse by verse. We'll be here for a very long time. But that's the whole message, if you will, that carries us all the way from 3.6 all the way again to 7.1. But I do want to read the most significant parts. And chapter 3 is one of those significant parts. And it kind of drops off in 4. I'll point to a few things. But let me go back in verse 6 and... I'll pause as we walk through some of the things that the Lord is saying. It says, Then the Lord said to me, In the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and every green tree. She was a harlot there in reference to her idolatry. I thought after she's done all these things that Israel would return to me, but she didn't. She did not return. And her sister her treacherous sister Judah saw everything that took place, saw what the northern tribes or Israel did. They saw what I did in response. And to give you some perspective of time, it's been about 100 years that they've been off in captivity. Long time. Judah sat there and saw the whole thing. Okay. Verse 8, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away, given her a writ of divorce, Yet her treacherous sister Judah, the southern tribe, Jerusalem, did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land, committed adultery with stones and with trees. They literally were worshiping stone, rocks and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather into deception she went, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Now, here's a question that you need to give some thought. Why is Judah worse than Israel when Judah followed simply in the path of Israel, worshiping the same gods, committing the same idolatry, rebelling against God in exactly the same ways. Why is Judah more guilty than Israel? Because she did it willingly, knowingly, seeing what God had already done to Israel. 
you're definitely on the right path. There's somebody that had gone before that wrecked and ruined everything. She had the example before her, and she went and did it anyway. There's another reason she's more guilty. What is that? Exactly, that's another very good reason. Judah had the appearance of revival. Judah had the appearance of reformation, but it wasn't genuine. It was just external religion. What's another one? That's the big one. Judah had Jerusalem. Judah had the temple. Judah had the presence of God. In other words, if anybody had received the blessing of God, the grace of God, it was Judah. In other words, guilt is directly proportional to the grace received. If the grace was great, the guilt is great. That one put me in a personal tailspin for a long time. You think about the grace that you and I have received. You think about the understanding that we've been blessed with. You think about the depth that we understand the gospel in all that we've been given in regard to understanding doctrines and teaching of scripture and those sort of things. Our grace, I really don't think anybody has gotten more grace than we have. I mean, how many Bibles do you have in your house? Think about that. How easy is it for you to get on and listen to great men in our day and listen to him preach and be faithful with the word of God. I mean, you literally can pull up somebody like Alistair Begg on your phone at the drop of a hat and listen to any sermon that he's preached in the last 30 or 40 years. Not just that, the Puritans of old from 1600 that I've been quoting on Sunday, you have their books in your house and you have the demonstration of your life. In other words, the grace that we've received, I don't know if anybody has gotten the grace that we've gotten. And yet, look at our sinfulness. That, that really should break our hearts. And, and the Lord's the one that brings this up. Judah's more treacherous. Judah's worse. And so the things that y'all have mentioned, like Jonathan, the example, we know all those examples. I mean, we've, we've got a whole book about examples of turning against the Lord. You know? Um... So thankful for Christ. Can you imagine if we had to stand without him, what the Lord would say of us? What, I had nothing else to give. I gave you everything, everything. I had nothing left to give. And yet you turned against me and you were rebellious and you were idolatrous. So we need to always keep that in mind. Grace and guilt are directly proportional. Okay? Um, what is that passage to much is given? Much is required, right? Now what takes off in verse 11 is the Lord really tries to make Judah jealous. It took me, well, to be honest with you, I didn't catch it. I had to have a whole lot of help with this, why he was doing this. But notice what Jeremiah preaches to Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north. So Jeremiah is going to go south and speak toward the north, okay, because he's going to speak to Israel. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, that you have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree. Acknowledge that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declare the Lord, for I am master over you. I will take you from one city and I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you into Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, will feed you with knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days 
When you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. So what part of that is supposed to make Judah jealous? that he would even offer Israel an opportunity of reconciliation. It's been a hundred years. You guys have been off in captivity. Judah watched her go. And by this time, Judah's just something people scoff at. I mean, sorry, Israel is just something Judah would scoff at. She got what she deserved. She fell under the wrath of God, and there she's been for almost a hundred years or over a hundred years now. And so for God to come along and say, Hey, Israel, just repent and I will return you to sons would have made Judas angry or Judah angry about that. Why would God offer that to them? Because they've been away from him so long and under the wrath of God so long. And then he turns toward the end of that, toward the end of that message and reminds them, it's not just Israel that I want to repent, it's you as well because I want Jerusalem to be the place in which I personally dwell. Not just the ark, God say. If you will return to me, I myself will dwell there. And things will be totally different. Okay? I wonder if there's somebody that would ruffle our feathers if, if God had a man to preach that message to. I wonder if the Lord called through a prophet, which he would not do anymore. And I say that because so many claim they're prophets. But what if the Lord sent a prophet to the Catholic Church? Didn't say anything to us. Just went to the Catholic Church and called them to repentance and faith in Christ. I wonder if we would go, what are you doing? Why in the world would you go down there? Do you not know the history of the popes and the deception and all that's taken place within the Catholic Church and you're going to send somebody down there to preach a message of repentance and restoration? Are you kidding me? It, it kind of takes on that kind of flavor. Make you deeply concerned about why the Lord didn't send somebody to encourage us or, or, or call to us or send a message to us. Why did you send a message to them? rather than us. So this really should have got Judah paying attention to the Lord. Of course, it doesn't. But when we begin to think about it in, in those sort of terms, you could see it would grab a hold of you really quickly. Can you imagine our conversation the next Sunday when we walked in here? How we would be looking at each other in absolute disbelief, even concern. Have we been faithful at all about these sort of things that God would go in a different direction away from us. Look at verse 18. In those days, now, you got to decide something with your theology here, okay? Because the Lord is about to, to talk about an eschatological day when everything's been set right, all right? In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Then I said, how I would set you among my sons as identity, give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations. I'll give you identity. I'll give you a place. Number three, and I said, you shall call me what? My father. And not turn away from following me. So the Lord speaks of a time in which both north and south, both Israel and Judah will walk together in the house of the Lord. And he speaks of a day where they'll be referred to as my sons. They will live in their place and they will call God himself 
my father. So you got to do something with that. So either God's done with Israel, like a number, a growing number of people actually believe, God's completely done with Israel. The church has replaced Israel. Or you've got to figure out what the Lord is doing here, right? Is he just speaking of something that was supposed to happen that's never going to happen? Or is he speaking in a sense of these things will take place? Okay. That's where I am, by the way. Verse 20, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now what follows next is true repentance. And he's speaking of it as, as, as if it has actually taken place. So if we're going to take those passages in 18 as something that's going to take place, then I think you're going to have to take 21 as following as something that's going to take place as well as a true repentance from the nation of Israel. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplications of the sons of Israel. Because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Now God speaks, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Israel speaks, Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the hills are a deception. And the reason he references hills is because those were where the high places were. Those where they committed idolatry. Surely the hills are a lie. They're a deception, a tumult on the mountains. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Israel continues to speak, but the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth. Their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters, meaning the idolatry has taken place all the way back since the days of our fathers and it involved every part of our culture. Our livestock were offered as sacrifices. Our sons and our daughters were involved in this idolatry as well. Verse 25, let us lie down in our shame. Let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Then God speaks, if you'll return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return. If you will, then you should. And if you put away your detested things from my presence and not waver about it, which is exactly what Judah is doing now, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice and in righteousness. That will define how you will live. Notice what happens next. Then the nations will bless themselves in him and in him they will glory. In other words, the picture is this. Israel will truly repent and turn back to the Lord. The Lord will bring them into himself, bring them into their city call them and refer to them as sons. They will refer to him as my father. They will walk in truth and justice and righteousness and the nations will see it and they will run to the Lord. And if you're like, well, wait a minute, wasn't that in the Old Testament plan? That's exactly the Old Testament plan and it never happened. That's what was supposed to happen. Judah and Israel was supposed to live in such a way as to make people want to worship God. They were supposed to be a people who were filled with truth and justice and righteousness. They were supposed to be a humble people, a meek people, a loving people, a serving people, a people who were absolutely devoted to the one true God. And if the other nations could have seen a people doing that, they would have been drawn to that God. But they never saw that. The other nations saw them climbing up the hills to worship the stones and the trees and those sort of things. They saw the injustice that took place within the nation. They saw all the wicked things. And so they were never drawn to the Lord. So you got to do something with this, right? And, and what I do with this is I, I, this is going to take place in my mind. This is going to actually take place at some point along the timeline. And the nations will run to the Lord because of how Israel lives in that particular day. Now, it is possible, some would say, that Jesus has already done all that. That Israel will never do that. That all of that was accomplished in Jesus. It's something to think about. He certainly did accomplish all that. 
Um, but I think the promises to Israel still stands. And I think we will see these things. I think we'll see these things as a nation. Um, I think we will fulfill our purposes that the Lord had planned to us, or planned for us. So what happens next is the reality of their situation. So we move out from an eschatological thought into the present in verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. Now, if you'll take that back into the context of verse 6, in the days of Reformation, there's the problem. Your heart hasn't changed. Nothing's different about you. You know, this is what we're talking about this morning, or every time we talk about salvation, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about genuine salvation. Conversion takes place at the heart. It doesn't take place anywhere beyond that or outside of that. It's the heart that drives everything. And as the heart changes, the life changes. And so when we see these lives go off in a different direction for a season, but then go back to who they once were and the things that they once did, there is the concern there, there's a genuine fear there that nothing ever really took place at the level of the heart. It was just all exterior, all external, all things for people to see and not true change from the heart. Verse 4, men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, you need to circumcise yourselves to the Lord Set yourselves apart from the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem. Now Jeremiah is preaching there in the city. Blow the trumpet in the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities Lift up a standard towards Zion. Seek refuge. Do not stand still, for I am bringing evil from the north. Here comes those who are carrying them off into captivity. I'm bringing evil from the north and a great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket and a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone up from his place to make your place or your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant for this, put on sackcloth, lament, and well, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned against us. It shall come about in that day, declares the Lord, that the heart of the king and the heart of the princes will fail, and the priests will be appalled, and the prophets will be astounded. And then notice verse 10. This is difficult. Then I said, Jeremiah speaks now, O Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, You will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. So Jeremiah preaches the message, and the message is, I've already sent the enemy out. They're actually on the way. And Jeremiah realizes what he has said and he realizes the hopelessness of their situation and he turns and speaks to the Lord with a broken heart. And he makes a confusing thought, you've utterly deceived the people. Now, why, why would he say that? All the repentance was said, the captives would come. <laughs> What's the matter? I mean, kind of a catch-22 there. Yeah, well, we want you to repent, but they're already coming for you. Yeah, but look at... Look at the four words that he quotes. Utterly deceived his people saying, and that's not something God ever said. So who said that? Who said you're going to have peace? God didn't say that. False prophets saying that. In other words, Jeremiah's going, Lord... I'm preaching a different message than everybody else and the message they're hearing and the message that they've accepted is they're going to have peace, that those people aren't coming. But you just told me they are coming. 
Why did you let them preach this? Why did you let them say this? So Jeremiah is brokenhearted over his people. So here, here's the thought. We talked about false teaching this morning. False teaching is something that's a result of the sinfulness and the rebellion of the people who profess faith in God. It's a judgment that God allows in cases toward His own people. If you're not going to follow me, if you're not going to do what my word says, fine. I'll send somebody to preach a false word to you and you will accept and believe in that. It's consequences for our own sin and rebellion. If you're not going to listen to the book that I have written to you, I'll send somebody to say lying things to you. So you've got two things at work there. You've got the enemy who constantly sends false prophets and false teachers and false preachers. But then as a judgment, God allows such things against the people who refuse to listen. So when we look at the church today, who's absolutely full of false teachers and false preachers and false prophets, I mean, what can you say? We haven't listened to you anyway. We haven't been a humble people. We haven't been a repentant people. We haven't been a people that sought for the face of the Lord. We haven't trembled at the sound of His word. Therefore, we constantly deal with these things. You guys deal with these things on the radio. You, you deal with this when you turn on K-Love. You, you deal with this when you listen to contemporary Christian music. There's false messages everywhere in, in those songs. You deal with this when you listen to almost all these men, almost all these men on the television set. T.D. Jakes got caught. I mean, fruit bears out, Right? But he's still going. And he's ordained his own daughter to be the minister or the head over his ministry now and, and to preach and teach. And I don't know if you've heard her. It's, it's demonic that she's leading thousands of people away from the Lord. And so you can look at that and go, yeah, the enemy worked in bringing about T.D. Jakes. But then you also have to look and go, the Lord has allowed these things because people won't listen to truth they want to listen to prosperity theology. And God's like, oh, I'll give you some dandies. I'll give you a whole bunch of those if that's what you want to hear. And so we got them. And people listen to them. People quote them. People post things that they say on their Facebook page. And you're like, really? Really? Yeah, really. That's, that's exactly where we are. That's... That's something we desperately need to think about because Jeremiah was definitely preaching a different word than everybody else was preaching and they refused to accept it. And so he asked the Lord, Lord, there's literally a sword at their throat and these guys are still saying nothing's going to happen to you. Why have you allowed that? It just points to the foolishness of the people. So again, I take you back to what the Lord said in his sermon, false prophets, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, but you will know them by their what? The fruit. You can tell by their life. You can tell by their life. There's no way, nowhere, no reason that anybody would look at Joel Osteen and accept anything he's ever said. You're not paying attention to the fruit in the man's life. And you don't even have to know him personally. You, you can tell that publicly. There's no way that you should ever listen to anything he says. Look at the man's fruit, right? And, you know, what do they preach? Peace. Peace. That's what God's got planned for you. Prosperity, peace, happiness, joy, contentment, blessing upon blessing, right here, right now at your job, in your health, everything that the Lord just wants to touch, wants to strengthen, wants to bless, wants to grow, wants to make you significant, wants to put you in the center of all things, and people's just eating that up all the time. Very same thing, doing exactly the same thing.
Let me point to just a few passages because it, it continues to be. Um, notice verse 14. He says many of the same thing in a different way. Wash, sorry, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge in you? Another pointing to the reality that it was the inside that was the problem. Verse 18. Your ways and your deeds have brought these things to you. This is your evil. How bitter, how it has touched your what? Heart. So he keeps using these metaphors to point to the reality. Their heart is the problem. Their heart is the problem. Their heart is the problem. The things that they want are evil. Now, 19 is terrifying. It's supposed to be striking. See if you can pick up why. My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart. This is a message that Jeremiah is preaching. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. Because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed for the whole land is devastated. Suddenly my tents are devastated. My curtains are in an instance. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? So what has set off this great anguish and anxiety? It's a sound, by the way. What is it? And it's foreshadowing. It's not actually taking place. What's the sound? The sound of the trumpet, which marks the enemy is at hand and he's attacking. Y'all, I'm sure y'all watched those old movies about the air raids and the air horns that would go off before there. Can you imagine sitting in your home in the middle of the night? You got little kids in the bed and you hear that horn go off. Somebody was selling one on Marketplace the other day. He had a little video where he hooked that thing to a battery and the faster that fan it was like huge fan on both ends turning different directions the faster it got the louder it got and i'm sure if you'd been in that shop it was a deafening sound that horn and it was one of those air raid horns it was you know i guess from world war ii or something he had can you imagine laying in your bed at night and hearing that thing go off and you got kids in the bed and then all of a sudden you the house shakes and you hear a rumble and you know Somewhere down the road, a bomb, first bomb hit, and you know there's more coming. Can you imagine the fear in that? I've told y'all before that night I got scared with the uh, earthquake. I couldn't walk. I couldn't get my legs to work. I got out of bed, and I was trying to go get the kids and gathered up and get out of the house because I thought, I thought the house was falling down. I had no idea what was going on, and I could not get my legs to work right. I was so mad. And I was just stumbling around. I had a kid in each arm, and I told Paige, I said, just go out in the yard. Because I still didn't know what was going on. The house was shaking. And you get in the middle of that and the trumpet glare and you hear the bombs and the guns. or Not during that day, but you get the picture. Absolute anguish and anxiety. And the Lord says, I, I, all this is coming your way because you refuse to repent. Just the sound of war. And it's going to absolutely terrify you. You won't even be able to walk. Verse 22, for my people are foolish they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good, nah. They don't know anything about that. They don't know anything about doing good. Now he references creation with the aspect of the devastation that's about to take place. Um, verse 26, I looked, behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness just like before creation, all of its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So he's about to return it to nothingness. And then comes hope. Notice verse 27, and then we'll move on to chapter 5. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation yet. And if you're a word underline or a circler, there's one to underline. I will not execute a complete destruction. There's your grace. I'm going to level it, but not entirely, meaning there's still hope for it to be saved. 
chapter 5, verse 1, he takes up another stretch, I guess, of judgment. He's preaching, carries us all the way through verse 9. I'll, I'll point out a few things. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look now and take note. Seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, if there's one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. So what do you tell Jeremiah to do? Go see if you can find one guy. Just walk through the streets, go up and down, run back and forth, carry a piece of paper and write it down. You find one man, just write his name down and I will not send judgment. So you get the picture of the depth of their depravity. I couldn't find anybody. Okay. The last part of verse 3, they've refused to repent. Then I said, they are only the poor. They are foolish. They do not know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of the Lord. So I will go to the great and I will speak to them. But look at the result of them. For they know the way of the Lord, the ordinance of their God. But they too with one accord have broken the yoke and they've burst the bonds. In other words, you've got the contrast. Verse 4, you've got the poor. Verse 5, you've got the great. But at the conclusion of it, they're absolutely no different. You can run to the streets of the poor section of the town or you can run through the streets in the wealthy section of the town. Uh, the people that are significant and you still can't find anybody. None of them follow the way of the Lord. Notice the end of verse 6. Because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are numerous. And then 9 is the question that's kind of a conclusion for that section. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? And on a nation such as this shall I not avenge myself. Verse 11, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt treacherously with me, declares the Lord. They've lied about the Lord and said, not he, misfortune will not come on us and we will not see sword or famine. The prophets are as a wind and the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you've spoken this word, Behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. So again, he mentions the false teaching and false preaching that's going on. They've lied about God, verse 12. They said, all this is not from him. Misfortune is not going to come on us. We will not see the sword. We will not see the famine. And Jeremiah says, all those other prophets are like wind. The word of God is not in them. So again, we come back to the false teaching, the false prophecies. Okay, And if you'll notice the contrast in verse 14, because you've spoken this word, I'm going to make my words. So you've got your word and your word is we've done nothing wrong. All of this is not from God. God's going to deliver from us because you've spoken that word. Then I'm going to bring my word and my word is going to be a lack of fire and it's going to consume them. My word is judgment. My word is wrath, and it will fall on them. Now, I've been in a particular church that referenced this passage from the pulpit and prayed that his words that morning would be like a fire. And I hair stood up on the back of my neck. I'm like, I hope not. That's not a good reference. Our words become fire when the people have become stupid and they refuse to listen and they refuse to repent. It's a word and a message of judgment. Every time you find fire in the Bible, the Pentecostals want to do something different with it. But it's judgment. It's God pouring out his wrath on a wicked people. And I pray that we never find ourselves as a church in the position where God sends his word as a fire. That means we've altogether refuse to hear him. We refuse to repent. We've totally sold out against him and we've believed in a false message when we should have believed in his message. All right, it's six o'clock. I could stop there.
got another chapter to go. Questions? Thoughts? Now, let me give you one reflection and, and we're finished. And I don't know why I'm, I'll give you this reflection, but I just will because I get frustrated um, when I think about this and the argument about free will. This idea, and it's, it's a false message in the church today that we deal with all the time that God has done all He's going to do and now the rest is up to you. And when you look at places like this in Jeremiah and you see all that the Lord has done and He sends Jeremiah through the streets and says, just please go find somebody and write their name down for me. And Jeremiah goes, well, I went to the poor and I didn't find anybody over there and I went to those of reputation. I didn't find anybody over there. I mean, it's been a wholesale thing, Lord. They've all turned away from you. And the Lord's like, Judah didn't, Jeremiah. There's no way Judah would because the grace that Judah got, I mean, Jerusalem, come on, the temple, are you kidding me? The temple's in Jerusalem. There's no way Judah has gone wholesale against me and rebelled against me. And Jeremiah's like, even Judah. Even Ju and Judah saw all of that and she did it anyway. And so for us to live in, under the delusion that there's something within us that would bring us to faith and repentance and to choose God without the grace of God at work and the Spirit of God at work in our life, oh, you can't find it in the Old Testament. It's, it's not to be found. And so we have to understand, are you responsible to repent and believe? Yes, you are, but if you have, you need to understand the Spirit of God has done a mighty work in your life. A tremendous work for you to understand the sinfulness of your own ways and to turn from that and turn to the Lord. That's grace. That It's even more grace than can be found in these passages because that grace has caused you to be born again. That grace brought you to repentance, you see. This is a picture of man when God has done everything on the outside he can possibly do. And we understand that no matter what God does, until he does something in the heart, we're going to act just like this. And we'll actually go around and think there's nothing wrong. We're at peace with God. But we're not at peace with God until Christ does what he does and God does something within our heart.